0: Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a song of ice and fire, episode 89. Jamie won in a feast for crows. I'm one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Lies and Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, or uh, LiesandArborGold.com. And I am another one of your hosts,
1: Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit on the Maester Monthly podcast. I swear to God, this is going to come out and had to re record it. And, uh, or Arithmetric on Twitter
0: tana ford is gonna have to come back on here and be like you guys are copywriting me with your maester wheneverly yeah okay but we should have tana back we should have tana back and i like that idea the one episode update that we can give you all right now is that we are going to have the free cities back this month in may i know that a lot of people are thinking about the free cities as well you know because
1: we're all thinking about man remember that time we could be free in our cities but
0: (laughs) (laughs) no i don't
1: (laughs) once upon a time we used to leave this block radius um (laughs) how many episodes of ours start like this now but this month for Patreon, we are doing a song of ice and fire episode and we are going to do mir last month we did tyrosh
0: it's a mia dario
1: Yes, and uh, <laughs> I, I do want to walk people through my uh, rationale for how we picked Mir. You know, there's a lot to say probably of how it follows Tyrosh, but really I picked it because the month is May, Mir is spelled M-Y-R, it's three letters, begins the letter M, has the letters M and Y, and I'm like, it's, it's like the same word.
0: Yep, that was, uh, honestly, we had eight choices and that was what we and chose. And Chloe was like, okay, she was fine with that rationale. She she signed off on this. Okay, first off, I don't like that you're giving me the blame. <laughs> you're kind of acting like Jamie Lannister in this chapter, and I don't like it. No,
1: then I would say it was all my fault. That's different.
0: Oh my god. <gasps> Inside, in your head, but out loud you wouldn't. Out loud you'd be like, I condemn you to die, Chloe. Listen, Davos Fingers is also covering the Free Cities. They actually just put out on, god, I think it was on 420. Wow. Episode 97, Free Cities Aren't Free. And they explored some free cities, they explored Lorath, uh, Kohor, Norvos, and uh, the daughters, right? Mir, Lise, Tyrosh, and we're not quite at Leese yet, because I know I could talk for far too long about Leese and far too long about Pentos and other places. Both? We've had two of the Davos fingers on before
1: to discuss Jon.
0: I was gonna say we got fingered, but I felt like it was inappropriate. So we had We're leaving it. Two (laughs) of two fingers. We're (laughs) leaving (laughs) it. (laughs) We had uh, some of the fingers on. Two of the fingers were on for John. John got fingered, if you will. So that was fun. Matt and Scad came on for some John, some Stannis, some Mance, and I love that. That's a throwback now, as we're deep within the realm of Jamie. And a Jamie one. We're in a feast for crows. And I am so hyped about that. I, I love. Speaking
1: of some of the emails that we got last week. Or was it a tweet? Uh, Chloe was addressing the issue of Boris Blount. Whether or not he could have redemption. And Chloe pointed out, right, that Boris Blount is not looking so hot in the, the dance epilogue. And, you know, coincidentally enough, this past like uh in the past like two weeks right after chloe put that out elio garcia actually said something that really backs up what chloe was saying i mean i think we all kind of were like yeah yeah for sure he definitely seems like he's dying but elio kind of confirmed that this is definitely a a very impending part of boros's life death
0: (laughs) yeah elio commented actually on our friend zionius who talked about Greenbeard. Uh, a character named Greenbeard in A Storm of Swords, you might recognize him. We talked about him in depth in the Tai Roshi episode that we mentioned earlier, but Zionius also elicited a response while talking about Boros Blount from Elio Garcia, who said, for what it's worth, in the original manuscript of A Feast for Crows, before George had split some things up, move some things around, do some stuff for dance, Boros Blount died. I mean, I think that shows that that's definitely something that's on
1: the horizon for Boros Button, And I was like, wow, Chloe was just talking about this. She called it and
0: it's great that we have this sort of confirmation. Something Elio said that I didn't explore much was that he said George had the language to be kind of like heart failure. Uh, So I'm kind of wondering if he decided that being a taster was smarter, not smarter, but an easier way to give Boros a death that made sense, a death that flowed.
1: I mean, it could have been heart failure, but also from poison, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Eventually. I mean, like, poison can, what, target a bunch of different parts of you or something? Probably.
0: <sighs> the only part I target is the liver, Eliana.
1: Wow. Okay. Uh, That is how a lot of poison does, in fact, work, I'm sure. And so, clap, clap, clap. Congratulations, Chloe. As usual. Thank you. Was right. Thank you.
0: <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard, hard being, so being right legally right. It's so hard being so legally right by the law, but someone has to do it. And not only is being right something I literally <laughs> oh have God. to do to up- uphold my honor, but I also have something called the lightning round to bring you all. And today, this lightning round is a goddamn thunderstorm. It is long. We When Jamie ended in A Storm of Swords, we still had a handful of chapters left. In a Storm of Swords to finish. Uh, so, we're gonna make this short and sweet. We're gonna rush through a Storm of Swords, jump to the A Feast for Crows chapters that we're also missing out on before we hit Jamie's first chapter. We're also gonna talk in depth about Tyrion in a Storm of Swords, Cersei 1 in A Feast for Crows, and Cersei 2 in A Feast for Crows. So, buckle
1: up. We'll lightly touch on Brienne 1 from A Feast yes, for Crows. Yes, very
0: lightly throughout this chapter. But first, we're gonna start with John. 10. Stannis. Stannis. Stannis, I guess. Yes. Eh. <laughs> Sam. I don't know the genocide thing, man. It kind of softened me. That's all. Yeah, I'm also just, uh,
1: I just like, I've never been like I and I've said this before. Anyways, Arya 13. Unable
0: to put the dog to sleep. Arya heads for bravos. What the fuck? I had to keep these short and sad, settle down. Sam all 4. Sam must become a player in his very own Game of Thrones at the wall. John 11. Stannis makes John an
1: offer that he can hardly refuse, except he just does because he's not a fucking sellout.
0: <laughs> Tyrion 11, which we'll talk about very soon. Tyrion complicates his escape plan, leaving a gaping power vacuum to whirl in the chambers of the Red Keep. Chambers? Of secrets. Of <laughs> poop. Samuel 5. Stannis <laughs> and Amen put pressure on Sam. John 12. The wall is John's. Sansa 7, your sister. So glad you got that. Epilogue, she don't speak, but she remembers. And that launches us very quickly into Feast, into the book that we're starting. My favorite of the books, probably. I'd say Feast, Clash, uh, Dance, Storm, Game, whatever. Anyways, uh, but Feast for Crows, I love it so much. And that starts off, Eliana, tell us where we start.
1: Hang on, I just want to say Feast, Storm, Dance, Game, Clash. Mmm,
0: yeah. really spicy. You really think Clash is that bad?
1: It's my least favorite. That's it. What's up? <laughs> Prologue! Mm-hmm. Paint trades a key for Two love. Melage. Melich is by a dweeb within a dweeb but collapses dead
0: on the cobblestones instead. True They're very slippery. Love. The prophet, claimants for the salt Throne, oh sea God. stone chair, begin to gather, and Aaron Greyjoy feels a king's mood on the rise. Dude, I forgot that they called
1: it the Salt Throne. Yeah, I wanted to ruin your life. I sit on the Salt Throne. Five years. Um, um, big mood. The captain of the guards, mm. not Jamie, but Arya Hota. Guards the prince as news of Oberyn's defeat reaches Dorne. The prince's retinue reaches Sunspear, and he must imprison
0: the Sand Snakes while deliberating over his next moves. Wow. Cersei won. Cersei wakes to a living nightmare, the patriarch of House Lannister, murdered by her demon of a little brother. Jaime refuses to be her hand.
1: Brienne won. Brienne begins her quest, seeking a girl of three and
0: ten with auburn hair. Samwell won. John Snow sends Sam and Gilly across the sea to try to save the lives of princes. Oh. I realized that
1: earlier I accidentally said Samuel. Sorry, y'all. Arya 1, Valar dohares.
0: Cersei 2. Cersei's scheming seems to hit a brick wall, but Kyburn brings her a coin of a different color. Later, she argues with her uncle. That springs us right into A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 11, and A Feast for Crows, Cersei 1 and 2. I wanted to really highlight these chapters because I feel like they're formative, especially with how we leave Jamie in a storm of sorrows. We leave him not triumphant, but learning, right? We leave him learning. We leave him a little broken, but healing. And Tyrion 11a is a hell of a chapter, and A Feast for Crows, Cersei 1 and 2, Cersei's first two POV chapters is just, holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! Woohoo! <laughs> Pour some shots! Actually, though. Wow.
1: <gasps> there are a lot, but like in a great way. Like, I'm, you know, rereading
0: it and rereading Cersei's chapters. Like, damn, what a force! What a force. And. There's a lot happening here, right? You have Tysha looming over Jamie's entire plot, and Tyrion's the ghost mm-hmm. of a girl throughout a storm of swords. Especially for Jamie, we hear about Tysha in very passing about his guilt, and Jamie and Tyrion don't reunite, right? Once Jamie returns to the capital, we don't see a reunion. Uh, Tyrion Eleven is the big moment. Jamie is trying to spring him. It's their first reunion. Jamie shows up in Tyrion's dark cell, and it really does make me think of that earlier storm dream that we had of uh him trying to be brave and the sword and just like it makes me think that he's really trying to do this and he chooses Tyrion is like, this is my new focus. Like this is why I can do this. This is why I can be a knight.
1: Regarding that knighthood, right, there's like this really great line where During the part where Jaime and Tyrion are obviously still chummy, you know, Tyrion talks about the Blackwater and he's like, I didn't have my big brother there to protect me. And it's actually a really sweet line, you know, at that point, which makes all the things that come afterwards, like, way more sad. But anyway, you can see that both of Jaime's siblings, like Cersei and Tyrion, right, both of them saw Jaime as their protector and, like, he he was very much, in many ways, happy to fill that role for them. And right now he's like, I'm going to rescue him today. I'm gonna be the rescuer,
0: yeah, and then, of course, as we're about to talk about, he was not the rescuer. He was the day ruiner. Jamie ruined everything. This was the big reveal from Jamie that she wasn't a sex worker. Taisha wasn't a sex worker. Jamie didn't buy her. she was just a girl that actually probably did love Tyrion in her thirteen year old way with her big expanded emotional range, and Jamie was just following. Orders from Tywin. Uh, Tyrion tells him, well, jokes on you. I did kill your son, Joffrey, even though we know, the readers, that he did not. So Jamie now believes this, kind of, as his narrative. I think he knows in his heart, maybe not. But uh, and Tyrion killing Tywin didn't help his case here. Probably not. And, oh, Jamie finds out Cersei's been cheating on him. You know, her brother, Jamie. she's been cheating on him. Just want to put that out there.
1: I will say, in Cersei's defense, they never actually had a talk that they were exclusive. Especially- <laughs> I, I honestly feel that way. I literally,
0: I I've too. always felt that way about this. I mean, and to be fair, she straight up kind of lays it out for him in the last couple chapters, right? Like last hand when she comes, when he gets back to King's Landing, she's like, "By the way." I hope you know this isn't how it's gonna be anymore. We can't just go fucking each other all the time. It's gotta be more professional, and I don't want to. I just think that
1: they never really, like, laid out
0: the parameters of their relationship and had that talk,
1: especially considering that, you know, she kind of was in many ways forced to break that exclusivity, not by her own choice. But anyways, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like, what you were saying about Tyrion and telling Jamie and that's in the moment that they're promising honesty to one another. And Tyrion's like, sure, I'll be honest, and then he is and he isn't. There's a part of me that thinks, is this a callback, and we'll discuss that, of course, one day in Tyrion's chapters, that's a callback to the two truths and the lie. He says some truths, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then he lies about that. But then we come to Cersei in Feast, right? That's the next Lannister chapter that we get after Tyrion's um and and it picks up very 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 soon after Tyrion's POV
0: I love that their chapters in this book both start with them uncovering family secrets together we get Cersei's chapter and Jamie discovers the tunnels that it it's pretty widely believed that there are these secret tunnels and passageways obviously that helped get Tyrion up and down those 200 whatever steps to Tywin's chamber um, and Varys uses them, and his little birds obviously use them, but Jaime discovers these exact tunnels, and it's kind of hinted that maybe a Hand of the King once made these tunnels, and no one really knows who that Hand of the King was, but Cersei, in turn, discovers Shay in Tywin's bed, and it turns out maybe Tywin was the one who erected these tunnels that secretly let you put people in and out of the city, and I don't know. Jamie doesn't know that they're basically his dad's tunnels as he's exploring their depths, getting all the way to the bottom. And Cersei pretends that Shay isn't really there at all. You know, it's a—it's uh, kind of heartbreaking. They uncover these family secrets that they both reject for various reasons, and then Jamie refuses Cersei's hand job <laughs> in both manners of the word. Actually, though, and it's an interesting moment in like
1: because. In both Tyrion's chapter and Cersei's chapter here, both of them slap Jamie. Like, they're mm. just like, we're all gonna slap Jamie now.
0: Yeah, and A Feast for Crows really feels like it has this return to a Game of Thrones that we're gonna explore during all this. The slapping? Um, a bit. It reminds me, not in this exact circumstance, but with all of the Ned stuff that we're gonna talk about today, because there is a lot of Ned in this chapter. Mm-hmm. I didn't think there would be, I thought we had fled from dad, from Ned, for the most part, but I don't think we have. I think this chapter really does revolve around a lot of the same themes and ideas of when he was still alive or when he was being murdered, publicly executed. Um, but for Jamie, especially, right? For Jamie, who's a soldier who's come from all of this war and now he's dealing with just bullshit, uh, it reminds me of Robert slapping Cersei.
1: Oh. Yeah.
0: I think we're going to get a few flashbacks too. A lot of that power vacuum drama that we felt when we were in Eddard's chapters uh, because we're about to have a power vacuum. I mean, Tywin ran everything. And I mean, Cersei by the end of this is ordering the Kettlebacks to kill the sleeping guards, right? And it's kind of just a mess uh, once we get into Cersei 2 comes before we get into Jamie 1. So we just keep getting more and more of Cersei's mess on top of all this. But... What is happening in King's Landing? You know? <laughs> Who even
1: knows? Uh, chaos is the latter, you know? Holy shit. <laughs> Cersei too. Try as she might, she could not seem to bring Lord Tywin's face to mind without seeing that silly little half-smile and remembering the foul smell coming off his corpse. She wondered whether Tyrion was somehow behind that as well. It is small and cruel, like him.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense, Cersei. (sighs) The biggest problem with Cersei and Feast, I was just talking about with someone today, is that she is everything that she is suspecting. She's like projecting everything she suspects onto everyone else and going, well, that's what I would do. Actually, it's what I am doing, but it's what I would do. It's what I would do. You know, she's really just like playing that 4D chess in her mind. (laughs) She's got to chill. Uh, they attend the funeral for Tywin. Cersei is taking on his persona. Now Tywin, she thinks, the mob must have its show. It was a nuisance. She had offices to fill, a war to win, a realm to rule. Her father would have understood that. Hmm. Hmm. Hmm.
1: I guess, but... Jaime wears all white to mourn. He's all in on his king's guard, like, garb. And Cersei thinks Tywin would have hated it because Tywin preferred Jamie and Lannister, crimson and gold. And then there's a part where Cersei asks Kevin, you know, now that she's been rejected by Jamie to be hand, he refuses and tells her, you know, you should name Rowan or Tarly. And then outs that he basically knows about the incest.
0: Wild. Very wild moment, especially because, like, the wine is dropping from his beard, <laughs> like a teardrop almost. It's yeah. very. How do you take someone very seriously? With that. You don't. I can't. Why would you describe it? Like it's magnified in this moment, George. I Uh, forgot that that happened in that chapter.
1: And I was like, I can't like I understand this is like a really serious moment.
0: As soon as the wine droplet quivered from his beard, I was like, Whoa, (laughs) I felt that, George. I felt it. Kevin wipe yourself. But I feel more than anything, more than a, a spicy moment. I feel Jamie won. In A Feast for Crows. It's a big setup chapter. There's a lot of storylines that are stemming from this. We're going to explore a lot of them throughout this book with Jamie. But first, Jamie watches over his father's corpse and relives the moments and investigation after Tywin's death and what role he has in it. He also has a very eh, tender-ish it's moment right. with his son. It's a moment. It's a moment. It's uh, and again...
1: Jamie, of course, is in his Kingdard garb. He's standing vigil for Tywin, and there's a lot of great imagery, mostly just of the Sept, in this chapter. But it starts off with one of those. Uh, At dusk, the interior of the Great Sept of Baylor turned dim and eerie. The last light of day slanted down through the high windows. Washing the towering likenesses of the seven in a red gloom, around their altars, scented candles flickered, while steep shadows gathered in the transepts and crept silently across the marble floors. The echoes of the Evensongs died away as the, last murders, as the last mourners were departing.
0: There's a lot of religious framework in this chapter. Whether it's background work, whether it's very present in the current conversation going on. Eliana really outlines it later on as we're going to move through this chapter, but I do like that the way George describes this, the light descending like gloom, which he often uses in the story when he's describing thick smokiness, it evokes the image of motes and frankincense and myrrh that are lingering on the air and that dim quiet. And the idea of thick smoke and red light beaming down on the sept is an interesting thought to think about. Hmm. Especially with what might lie below King's Landing. Uh, just putting that out there. I was like, huh. Red light coming through the windows or red point. gloom. That's a good point. We obviously know uh, Cersei burning the Tower of the Hand is to come, so maybe it's more. Yeah, about that, I also just but... really like the word even
1: songs. I'm not going to lie. It reminds Aww. me of our girl. But what we about are... our boys, mm-hmm. our brothers, Bill and swatted and Loris Tyrell? i don't i just thought that would be an interesting transition anyways they stay behind for a bit they ask jamie yo when was the last time that you slept they're like no one can stand vigil seven days and seven nights and jamie's like i last slept and my dad was alive and there's a part of me that kind of is reminiscent i'm, I'm about to spoil american gods here for a second for all of you so skip forward about like 30 seconds to a minute if you don't want it spoiled. But there's a part of me that thought of um, that idea of like the standing over staying awake, sacrificing yourself for like your father or whatever. And uh, that family and ties and, you know, of course Odin did that for himself, but in American Gods, right? um, Shadow does that. Yeah, it
0: reminds me a bit of that, actually. That's a great call-out, but it also reminds me of Mm. Shiva in general, sitting Shiva in Judaism. Casseroles get brought flowers. No, you know.
1: I don't. Me either, because I'm not from that religion. But George obviously is inspired by a lot of real world religious ceremony.
0: Well, he's playing yeah. with a lot of these, right? I mean, we have different religions, whether it's Valeria, shy, whether you're in the north, whether you're in the south, there's just something different, some different, even if it's the same religion, but they practice different events or different things, right? Like uh, Christianity being an umbrella, yeah. for example. That feels a little bit present in this, and I would love that to be explored more, however, I understand that would add several more pages to each chapter of world building, so don't worry about it, George, just knock that one to the side. You know what I mean? I, I have other worries before that in the series, so... <sighs> Loris offers to stand in Jamie's place in this tribute. And Jamie, of course, refuses, and he says Tywin wasn't your father, but Jamie's feeling some immense guilt here, not just over that. Yeah, we have this line in Jamie's interiority
1: of, you did not kill him, I did. Tyrion may have loosed the crossbow bolt that slew him,
0: but I loosed Tyrion. Leave me! Ugh, so dramatic. Balin acquiesces and convinces Loras, who's about to protest, but, of course, wins out over him. Alone, Tywin is smelling, oh, not so fresh. He's smelling sickly sweet. The weight of his armor, the weight of Jamie's armor is starting to hurt his back. He's been standing so long, his legs are feeling numb. He feels his lost hand more than the rest of his body at this point. Hungry for a sword, hungry for vengeance, hungry for killing, because this is truly kind of how Jamie's getting through this death. Kind of how he's grieving.
1: Honestly, he's especially also blaming berries. Uh, for Tywin's death, not just himself and Tyrion. The blood is on his hands as much as mine, he meant to say, but the word's stuck in his throat. Whatever Varys did, I made
0: him do. Debatable. Debatable. I mean, as we learn from Varys in the epilogue uh, much later for Dance, that, you know, he kind of had a plan, right? That's what we're seeing for Varys. He did have a plan, after all. Jaime's operating under the thought now that Tyrion did kill his son Joffrey. Right, like That is kind of, he's like, wow, I guess he did kill him because originally he was like, I'm team Tyrion. He would never do that. And then Tyrion was like to his face, fuck you, I did it. Even though all of us know he didn't. Uh, thanks to that confession. And this feels obviously more like guilt mm-hmm. than anything, right? It, it's not just, I killed Tywin. Jamie's killed people. He's killed Ares. He's killed people. We know Jamie has killed people, but we do see other people indirectly add to their father's death, right, who suffer from this kind of guilt, like Sansa, for example, but it's also showing Jamie almost attempting to progress for once. Uh, he's learning from his mistakes, even though there are other people that may have been involved. You can't blanketly call this situation a bad or good situation. There were too many players in it, in my opinion. I would say my little brother too, so I wouldn't really... I don't know, I wouldn't say it's a bad decision. Of course he's going to try to save his little brother. But he's taking full blame for the consequences of his actions, for the deaths. At the same time, he's also realizing, wow, very skirting the law with how Tyrion was freed, skirting the law with how he enacted the springing of Tyrion. Maybe not good. Maybe maybe this is bad. Maybe when I do bad things or mix with bad puppeteers, bad things happen. Is what Jamie is saying here, and I think that's a kind of a really big deal for Jamie—the
1: realization that oh, hanging out with bad people makes bad things happen. Yeah, like
0: choosing bad yeah. choices.
1: Yeah, I, I I agree, and I yeah. think he's we're gonna see some of that a bit in this chapter as he starts to realize that. You know, you were talking about Jamie maybe not really being at fault, right? And they add to their suffering. Something that I find interesting about, you know, Jamie taking on the burden of Tywin's death on himself and making it his own fault, you know, obviously part of it is him trying to feel more control of the situation. That's part of why people sometimes do that. But it's very interesting to me in the context of his conversation with Loras Tyrell, uh, I don't know, two to three chapters before this Jamie chapter, two to three Jamie chapters before this one. You know, he's telling Loras and he's trying to convince him, yo, Brienne's not at fault for Renly's death. I mean, she's really not. But then in that moment, Loris starts to wonder. He's like, wait, hang on. If Brienne's innocent, then what about Robar and Emon? And Jamie tries to alleviate Loris' guilt and being like, if I were in your position, I would have done the same thing. right?" So it's sort of interesting that he's doing the opposite here and punishing himself as opposed to do- showing that same generosity to himself that he did to to Loris. And I think that's true. A lot of people do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like He's piling this guilt. Taiwan sat on to himself yeah. and you were saying something about how this is Jamie learning because you know his entire life like he's been carrying that that burden of Aries's death. He doesn't really regret it. I don't know that he necessarily should, but like he does it, it's something he feels righteous about. He doesn't really feel guilt about it, but at the same time he still hasn't really reckoned with any of the guilt or fallout of trying to throw a boy out the window, right? That actually is yeah. his fault. And, like, he's not taking that on himself necessarily the same way that he's doing so with
0: Tywin right now. Yeah, it does feel like a lot of projecting, and we'll obviously go on talking about that projecting, but there's so many layers of it here. Like, he doesn't, this is the first time he's finally decided, hey, I (laughs) can have control in this thing. Wow, maybe this was a shitty choice. It's almost refreshing. Um, I wouldn't say it's fully refreshing. I think Jamie has a very long way to go, even in Feast. We'll go on with that. I'm sure I will tell you all about my feelings on that eventually, but he does reminisce during this. He reminisces on accosting Varys in his chambers with a dagger before all of this went down, when he said, You need to free my brother Tyrion. After pricking his neck with a dagger, Jamie reveals to Varys that he doesn't care whether Tyrion's guilty or not and quotes the Lannister creed, uh pay debts, blah blah blah, gold gober and it's not their house words though guys. Yeah. Keep that in There's mind. There's
1: like this great parallel though again between Jamie and Tyrion here like cuz Tyrion as he's escaping is basically telling like Varys like I don't value your life as much as I value mine. Like he that's not actually the words but he does use similar words. Very similar. And Jamie kind of does the exact same thing just a few moments before that, based on his memories. And
0: I'm just thinking, like, Varys must be so tired like, of these brothers. Just being like, I don't give a shit about your life. Yeah, uh, Varys doesn't give a shit about anyone's life. I mean, that's the thing is, obviously we know what dragon Varys has in True. The race, right? Uh, and he claims to be for the realm and all he's that, got, but... He, he's very calm. You know, he acts like he's very stressed, and he's not The people are, like, out there all, we choose democracy, and Varys is like, what? Sorry. What was that? Did Did someone someone say Blackfire? Hmm. (laughs) I also choose the Blackfires. That two is my vote as Varys the spider. Uh. So Jamie hadn't slept since the night that Tywin died, as we already chatted about, and he just kept reliving Tyrion's smile and words. You poor, stupid, blind, crippled fool. He'd snarled in a voice thick with malice. Cersei's a lying whore. She's been fucking Lancel and Osmond Kettleblack and probably Moonboy, for all I know. And I am the monster they all say I am. Yes, I killed your vile son. So, Tywin,
1: actually dead. Not in a coma. But, and I think Chloe's gonna talk about this a little more. There's a lot of that grief and self-blame in Jamie's." Not sleeping. That just reminds me a little bit of Catelyn Stark at Bran's bedside. It's a little different, right? Because it, it's kind of funny because it's Jamie with his parent versus, like, his spawn. i can use that word. And versus Catelyn. Anyway, Jamie thinks that Tyrion hadn't said he meant to kill their father and hints that he would have stopped and killed him. And then he has this line where he thinks, then I would be the Kinslayer, not him. And as he stands, Jamie wonders, like, where Varys and Tyrion are now? Imagining them with a flagon of arbor gold together at one point. And I'm like, oh, interesting, interesting, the wine of lies. Lies and... Dornish Red?
0: Gold? (sighs) Jamie wonders if Tyrion also killed Varys, if he was capable of that. He had led an expedition searching for Tyrion below in all of the passages that lead downward and truly feels the loss of his hand while he crawls. As we know, they don't find Tyrion. He's long gone. Just darkness, dust, and rats and dragons lurking down below because there was an unsurprisingly lot of dragon imagery lingering down there. There was uh, an oven that was shaped like a dragon, rotten iron, Uh, It sounds really cool. I'm like, can I craft it? How many iron nuggets will it take in Animal (laughs) Crossing? (laughs) Do I need clay for it also? Uh, Maybe, maybe. And can I customize it? Can it be red and black or black and red? That's a
1: great question. You know, can we customize it red and black or the other, all the other colors of (laughs) Danny's dragons? Important to know how many customization kits does it take?
0: Oh my God. And so there is also a dragon mosaic on the ground. Down in the very bottom floor, in black and red, which I thought was an interesting, re- an interesting detail. It would be hopefully useful when we get to the Ariane Aegon sand snake plot coming up in the Winds of Winter, and it makes me wonder if maybe I don't know something has to happen down in this dragon mosaic. Maybe someone uses it to uh, climb up and perform some blood and cheese style murder. During or before the sack of King's Landing, two Maybe it's John Connington, Tyene Nim. No one knows. Uh, or maybe Arya and Aegon died down there. Maybe we get that show, Carol and Larry treatment on uh, Jamie and Cersei with them. No one <laughs> knows. Carol and Larry. Uh, Jamie and Cersei from the TV show oh, Game of Thrones. Gotcha, gotcha. The HBO experience. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Truly really an experience. Clannerpens uh, on board with it being the bad show uh-huh. now. The dragons seem to say that they know him in Rhaegar's voice, and then Jamie starts reminiscing about when he bid Rhaegar farewell. Uh, Rhaegar, of course, was in his iconic black armor with rubies on the breastplate, and Jamie's asking to go with him.
0: My royal sire fears your father more than he does our cousin Robert. He wants you close, so Lord Tywin cannot harm him. I dare not take that crutch away from him at such an hour. Jamie's anger
1: had risen up in his throat. I am not a crutch, I am a king. I am a knight of the
0: king's guard. Then guard the king, Sir John Dariad snapped at him. When you donned that cloak, you promised to obey. Rhaegar put his hand on Jaime's shoulder. When this battle's done, I mean to call a council. Changes will be made. I meant to do it a long ago, but, well, it does no good to speak of roads not taken. We shall talk when I return. Those were the last words Rhaegar Targaryen ever spoke to him.
1: First of all, Jamie should have known the red flags when Rhaegar was like, we'll talk when I return. Jamie, how did you not know that that means he's going to die? That's how it always
0: goes. He's never going to return. We've all seen the movies. That's how it goes. Duh, Jaime. Um, but you can see that he's
1: trying to be a little bit like Rhaegar in a way, right? He's like, yeah, changes will be made. Jamie's here like, changes will be made. Trying. Anyway, so in those that memory, there were two armies already. One outside the gates and another on the trident. And Rhaegar rode forth. Jamie's like, alright, yeah, turns out there were changes after the battle. a Fucking lot of them. Uh, including, you know, him remembering Ares' hubris. Thinking that, yeah, having Jamie near is gonna keep me safe. And Jamie jokes about this to his father's corpse. And he's like, oh,
0: interesting, the corpse seems to be smiling. It was queer, but he felt no grief. Where are my tears? Where is my rage? Jamie Lannister had never lacked for rage. Father, he told the corpse, it was you who told me tears were a mark of weakness in a man, so you cannot expect that I should cry for you. So I found this passage really interesting, because of course there's a lot to
1: be said about the source of trauma for House Lannister in general being one another and how they act with each other like all of them are just like terrified of each other oh no my sibling is gonna think this about me and my father whatever right but all of them seem to be unable to cry or imagine grief as anything but manifested through rage rather than like maybe grief comes in many different forms friends right like it what you're feeling can be grief, too. Cersei, in her first chapter in this book, as she finds out that Tywin is dead, she's also wondering, like, where are my tears? And she's just taking it out and barking orders on everyone around her. And, like, that's a manifestation of grief. But she's like, maybe I should be crying over my dad. We sure as hell know that Tyrion doesn't cry over Tywin. But, like, same as how Jamie's wondering, like, he's like, oh, man, I can't cry over my dad. And then he blames Tywin for- basically scaring the tears out of him it's similar language to back then in in a few chapters ago right where joffrey's dead and jamie's wondering where his tears and rage are for the death of his son and it actually comes a little bit before meeting
0: up with his father again if i'm not mistaken it does remind me a bit of sansa's reaction to joffrey's death as well Mm. Uh, how she can't understand why she's actually upset when she should be happy feelings are weird that's why we have books a bunch of people come to pay respects to Tywin Lannister. Some are solemn, but some, Jamie suspects, were happy. Cersei's funeral chapter, as we see, shows them making privy jokes in the background, some of the lesser lords. Grandmaster Pycelle's not okay. He speaks of Tywin as a great man. Pywin, our ship. It's a good ship. Uh, he wore no crown, yet he was all a king should be. Also, Pycelle has no beard right now. If you recall, because of Tyrion, Jaime thinks of that cruelty, and he projects losing his hand onto it. We get a good amount of imagery about that as well from Pycelle. Pycelle's beard had been magnificent, white as snow, soft as lamb's wool, a luxuriant growth that covered cheeks and chin, and flowed down almost to his belt. The Grand Maester had been wont to stroke it when he pontificated. It had given him the air of wisdom, concealed all manner of unsavory things. The loose skin dangling behind the old man's jaw, the small, querulous mouth and missing teeth, warts and wrinkles and age spots too numerous to count. I feel
1: bad for Paisal and his beard. I actually do <laughs> in this moment. It's
0: kind of compared here to Tywin, like to the mm-hmm. rotting of Tywin when you think about it. I um, see that. Yeah, like the, it, it's just hiding the flesh rotting beneath because Jamie himself thinks, you know, this is the end of this old man.
1: Yeah. But like it takes a long time to grow a beard and like obviously his just like his cells aren't growing hair the way they used to. Anyways, we know this because Paisal is trying to regrow it and he's failing. And then he goes on a spiel about all of the horrible things that he'd seen back in his day. Um I do actually think that this is in fact a riff on that trope, but then he talks about very real things that are probably gonna happen. Uh, that are probably like pretending things that are going to happen in this series. That you know, I I do think that grayscale is important, right? Like he recounts the great plague taking half of the city of Old Town and three fourths of the citadel, and the measures that Lord uh, Hightower at that time took, Lord Quentin Hightower. They were pretty extreme. He's like burning ships, closing gates, but also just slaying people who tried to run from the city. And then uh because of how extreme he was, Quentin Hightower was killed after the plague. And but Pyssel's like Quentin Hightower did what was needed. Your father was that sort of man as well, a man who did what was needed.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Well, see, I don't know if that phrase means what you think it means, Pyssel. Yeah, I don't know if like that's what I think about the word needed. Yeah, I don't know if it was necessarily needed. Some of uh, it was a lot. Interestingly enough, Quentin Hightower he and his son got mailer Targaryen, you know, the one that got torn apart by people on a horse
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: during the old Princess and the Queen-esque times back in the dance. The poor baby. Yes. The uh, young Targaryen kid that got ripped apart by people on a horse. Not good stuff. Not good. I don't know. I don't know if, uh, was it worth all that? Uh, Who were his corporate sponsors, you know? Oh my God. In the plague, in the pandemic. I just want to know as as a professional in the pandemic.
1: Wow, um, Pycelle explains that Tywin's smiling, because of the flesh that's drying, and that actually pulls his lips into a smile. Science, whatever. A drying. Yeah, Pycelle, we're not here for science, we're here for literature. And then Pycelle himself is like, you're right, he starts to tear up and excuses himself, then Jamie thinks that you know Pycelle's dying, and that's probably why Cersei thinks he's useless. But then he's like, then again, Cersei also thinks that everyone is useless or treasonous, including me. And you know, yeah. is Jamie wrong about himself nope. being quite treasonous
0: at this time, based on his current guilt and line of thinking? Debatable. Yeah, it turns out that Cersei's also been blaming ill in pain for Tyrion's escape, because the dungeons are his domain, and Jaime's really tempted to confess, but doesn't. He ends up interrogating Renifer Longwaters, who explains there's royal blood in his veins from a princess. She was the fairest treasure of the Maiden Vault. Lord Oakenfist, the great admiral, lost his heart to her, though he was married to another. She gave their son the bastard name of Waters in honor of his father, and he grew up to be a great knight, as did his son, who put the long before the waters, so men might know he was not basely born himself. So yes, I have a little dragon in me. Ah uh, yes, this is the story of Oakenfist and, and Elena Targaryen, one of the Maiden Vault sisters, if you all remember our Maiden Vault Patreon episode. Uh, Jamie responds very sarcastically to this. He's like, um I dunno, waters is pretty common, he thinks, in his head. And Renifer probably isn't descended from a princess, but more likely a knight. But I don't know that I agree with that.
1: It's actually technically both, um, because Renifer's is actually speaking the truth here. It's John Waters, son of Alan, Valerian, and Elena Targaryen, as, as you said. And he did, in fact, become a famous knight. So it's both a knight and a princess. You know, there's something here that you can see Jamie's sort of disdain for those who try to claim royal blood or anything about their station that that sort of classism is showing again and i don't know it's really something for him to dismiss this man who has actually more royal blood than the current king just saying than tommen tommen lannister <laughs> baratheon and there's a lot of irony playing out here in a couple of ways and i do think that there's a little more in here right that we're going to see in later books, as we see a lot more Targaryen-blooded folks popping up. I think that's something that's been drilled into us in Fire and Blood and, and the Dance, that, you know, there turns out are a lot more Targaryens than we thought there were. Um, and this... They're the, everywhere. Yeah, this, this tension between individuality versus family. How much, like, does your name and blood mean when it comes to your identity? And I, of course, think that's a huge question for the Lannister siblings, because a lot of what they've inherited is not just Genetics or blood, it's this trauma because of their brother. It's something that's very shared in their familial experience.
0: Yeah, Tywin really fucked them up. <laughs> he
1: did! And that's also Tywin's own trauma, right? That's something that we've
0: discussed. So JB is like, anyways, yes, lost prisoner, go Renifer. Renifer discusses Rugen, the undergaller, whose unkempt, unshaven course of speech, he'd been there a while. Since Rennifer had joined and was appointed by Eris, but wasn't always present, did not have a good attendance record. Uh, his reports went to the Master of Coin or to the Master of Whispers, the Chief the chief, and the King's Justice. Rugen was only available when needed. Apparently the Black Cells were little used. He only remembers Lord Stark, Grand Maester Pycelle, and Tyrion. Also, three common men who were sent to the Night's Watch, if you recall them. Rorj, Biter, Jokin, allegedly. Allegedly. Of course, the big joke here, as we all might know, is that Rugen is very... The amount of energy that's being spent on finding Rugen is hysterical. He's obviously implicated the gold coin from Tyrell, House Tyrell, if you remember from the last Cersei episode when the coin was uh, dug up as a prop from Kyvern to say, hey, the Tyrells really do have it out for you. This was to sow further seeds of chaos because we see in the epilogue that Varys kills Kevin and Pycelle. Yeah. Chaos, bitch. Ladder it.
1: Yeah, and that's something we'll talk about later, but, like, Varys is the one who's actually playing 4D chess.
0: Yep. The only one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, Rennifer explains the hierarchy of the jailers and responsibilities. You guys, I said Galar earlier. It's jailer. It's not spelled the way you'd think it would be. Uh, that's the English language for all of you. Uh, then Renifer reads the current prisoners from a book. There's four on the first level, one on the second. Also, your brother. But not anymore. Jamie's like, wow, interesting. The prison industrial complex. And he thinks of all the people that they're just like paying to maintain the imprisonment of only six people and to break it down because this is in Jamie's chapter. There's 20 turnkeys, six under jailers, a chief under jailer, a jailer, and
0: the king's justice, all for only six people, yeah, Jamie is like, "Wow, this is actually our industrial complex. It's not just a industrial complex, this is specifically the lannister funded industrial complex, and Jamie's realizing this is the system that his family's just allowed to let happen, no auditing, no nothing and you know, there's the Littlefinger debt scheme theory and a lot of other theories that have popped up of just little things that were happening in the King's Landing Council. And Jamie kind of just learned the truth about who the puppeteers are of King's Landing, right? He learned it from Varys firsthand. He's learning that Littlefinger uh, also did not have any of his friendship in mind during this. And it's just kind of like Ned learned from this. Uh, he mm-hmm. learned, I did warn you not to trust me, uh, these people were not to be trusted. Uh, yeah, you're right. I think it's interesting that Jamie's learning it from
1: varies, not from Littlefinger. For now, though, Jamie's just expanding his questioning for no reason, actually, to the turnkeys. And Rennifer's like, I already did that. Also, they're dead by your command. And Jamie's like, what? Then he realizes his own men were the ones used to kill them. It was the kettle blacks. And then he lays into Boros Blount, but also Osman, especially later, because he actually has some control over them. He's like, like, I don't know, we were just following orders. This is what Cersei said to do. She's like, make them sleep forever. And Jamie's like, uh he remembers those corpses and thinks he told Fairies no one was supposed to be harmed in the escape. And Osman's like, uh, they were for sure guilty. And, you know as we all know and find out, right, and we also know this from Tyrion's chapter, right, that very spiked their wine so that they'd sleep through it, and then Jamie just remembers Tyrion's words again. Yep,
0: it's all his fault. So Jamie is questioning why the Kettleblacks were so hasty to kill these people, kind of turning it back on them as though this is a real interrogation, and Osman invokes the Queen's orders and says that on his word as a sworn brother this is where they came from. Jamie once more says, Hey, next time you get ridiculous orders, you come to me first. There's a handful of reasons this is super interesting. I'll keep it basic. Uh, most of these reasons are projection and deflection. One of them is, Well, it's kind of Jamie's fault that these guys are dead. It, like, that's a very is. long way of analyzing it, right? Like, that's like a very broad stroke, but they died because of Jamie.
1: But if they died because of Jamie, and if it's his fault that these people died, is it also his fault then that Tywin died?
0: Exactly. So the Cattle Blacks and Cersei are banging, and Jamie's deflecting all the attention on what actually even happened here because he committed kind of a crazy thing. Like it's not treason per se, but he assisted in a murder. But he didn't. Hmm. He was assisting in an escape.
1: Yeah. I, I I do think that like A, that's interesting. B, I admire Jamie's commitment to this farce. Like, that's a lot of effort to be like, yeah, I'm gonna question all of these people. As though this is fucking real at all. And you know, you were talking about the Ned parallels, but now that I think about it, it's kind of like a funny parody of it, a caricature of Ned's investigation of the- yeah. Oh, who killed John Aaron? The hand of the king. Now we're like, oh, who killed Tywin Lannister? The hand of the king. And Jamie's like, yeah, it was, huh, I know what happened. I was like a big part of it, but he's still like playing the role of detective, whereas Ned actually was doing that. Anyway,
0: yeah. I like to, as we keep creeping forward with that, we're going to see it twisted right on its ass and see the opposite of, uh, wow, this is who would condemn Jamie Lannister for being Jamie Lannister. Uh, I think we're just going to see some like very obvious patterns of that. I'm excited for that.
1: Yeah. But also what he's doing here with the Kettleblacks and Blount, right? Uh, telling them, you have to come to me when people tell you shit. Like, just go murder these people. And that's something that he had actually said before to some of the other Kingsguard during that meeting in, like, I don't know, his second to last chapter, Storm. Right? He's trying to solve that problem of con- and, like, consolidate the issue because there's too many managers and bosses right now while he's been gone and he's like you guys are getting ridiculous orders like I don't know beating 13 year old girls and murdering innocent people
0: <laughs> for like out of spite yeah yeah there's a lot of that as we keep creeping forward Jamie is still very much bootlicking the system but he's also like fuck the system it's like come on Jamie you're so close yeah, he's like so close. Mm, abolish prisons, but wait abolish wait That's Jamie right now. Not if it benefits the Lannisters though. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamie is rethinking these things that we keep talking about during his entire vigil. The words echoed in his head. In the dimness of Baylor's Sept, above him all the windows had gone black, and he could see the faint light of distant stars. The sun had set for good and all. The stench of death grew stronger despite the scented candles. The smell reminded Jamie Lannister of the days below... The smell reminded Jamie Lannister of the past below the Golden Tooth, where he had won a glorious victory in the first days of the war. On the morning after the battle, the crows had feasted on victors and vanquished alike, as once they had been feasted on... as once they had feasted on Rhaegar Targaryen after the trident. How much can a crown be worth when a crow can dine upon the king?
1: Yo, yeah, that's like the book title. It's the whole entire thing. It's the, it's the thing. It's the thing that the book is. Especially because right now, you know, the crows are also circling the sept. Jimmy's like, good. The crows owe Tywin a lot of homage considering that how many dead bodies he fed them. And now Tywin's grinning, and
0: now Jamie's laughing aloud, quite madly. In Cersei 1, we get this little passage, kind of relates to Jamie laughing aloud madly. Should I scream and tear my hair? They said Catelyn Stark clawed her own face to bloody ribbons when the phrase slew her precious rob. Would you like that, father? She wanted to ask him, or would you want me to be strong? I love this framed against the tears as we talked about and how frustratingly hard they are to come for Jaime. Uh, the Red Wedding is kind of haunting the Lannisters' pages now as they get dealt their very own hand of grief because their victory over the Starks came at this price. This is the price mm-hmm. for this. Joffrey and Tywin dead, armies decimated, the stain of tyranny. It's not going great for them. Their long-term investment
1: is not paying off at all. And again, now we are back to the investigation. Uh, Jamie had Sir Adam Marbrand search for Tyrion on the Street of Silk, and he thinks of the gold cloaks, instead spending time with sex workers. And as he's thinking about this, his thoughts suddenly, like, interestingly start to wander to Brienne. And he's like, um, I wonder where she is. Hmm, why? Hmm, interesting. Interesting that Jamie would think of Brienne uh, while he's thinking of people having sex. But... Hmm. I will say that, okay, on Jamie's part, in general, this was a clever strategy to buy time. What? Think about fucking Brianna Tart? That too, but also just sending them to the Street of Silk.
0: Hmm. Okay, okay. Okay, you're right. Local economy. He prays Father give her strength, and then wonders if it means God or Tywin. Not that it mattered. They never listen, either one. The warrior had been Jamie's God since he was old enough to hold a sword. Other men might be fathers, sons, husbands, but never Jamie Lannister, whose sword was as golden as his hair. He was a warrior, and that was all he would ever be. Hmm, poor Jamie. I'll buy your stuff, Jamie. I'll like, buy your turnips. Jamie's like, I'm just a jock. There's this line in Cersei, too, that I feel like really encompasses a lot of Jamie's issues. Uh, it's. You cannot eat love, nor buy a horse with it, nor warm your halls on a cold night, she heard him tell Jamie once, when her brother had been no older than Tommen. You know, when you read this, you think this is something that Tywin maybe told Cersei when you start to read that line out loud, but then you get to the end where you realize at age eight, Jamie was told love was worthless. Jamie was programmed not to love. His aversion to Brienne completely shows this. It, it was like a Pavlovian exercise, right? To psychologically tie him to Cersei more than he already was from birth. And uh, it makes me think of how Tom and her Joffrey might have grown up, hmm. how messed up they would have been. And Mercella, people think Mercella's better off because she's away from all that, but is she really that better off? I mean, she's getting part of herself sliced off this book. And I think it's fair to say this is how a lot of Targaryens probably grew up, right? Their parentage was more public, less scorn happened for it. But also that scorn was from fear. It was from dragons. Like, you know how high end designer bags (laughs) are made out of like slave labor and stuff. And Then you get a knockoff bag that has like maybe two different seams, or maybe a a, a quote on the bottom, or a printing on the bottom. That's it. Targaryens versus Lannisters, baby. That's what that is. Yeah. Absolutely,
1: and I think there's a lot of good points in here of, like, as you were saying, they were taught from an early age love's shitty. Uh, No wonder he was like, "Mm, maybe I can depend on love from my family? Ugh in the weirdest way that he could possibly get it. There's a lot as of the Lannisters aspiring to be Targaryens, and I think we get a lot of that in Cersei's chapters and her insight into Tywin as a parent, and we'll get to that at some point. I can't wait for those. She's
0: crazy as hell, and it's great. They just the Lannisters overcompensate professionally. That's their whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. They do. So Jamie considers confessing to Cersei. But remembers how well it went last time he told the truth with Tyrion. And just remembers everything again. Feels all the emotions. Interesting stuff is happening here in Cersei and then in Jaime. Uh, Suffering guilt from Shay is where Cersei is. And suffering guilt from Tysha. But in much different ways. Cersei's refusing to believe that her father, the man she attributed her entire worldly aspirations to, is actually the same type of monster that all the other men in her life were. She can't handle that, so she covers it up, literally, physically, and has them get rid of Shay's body. She threatens the Kettleblacks, if anyone finds out that she was there. And she kills the guards that let, quote-unquote, were drugged, Tyrion escape. Because if no one can prove it, Cersei never has to confront it. And this is what Cersei does. It's what she's been doing for the past few books She's been shoving women in holes to pretend they aren't a problem or not there, right? You have Jane Poole, Felice, Sinell, uh, Malora Heatherspoon, the OG, and hell, may as well put Marjorie in that list because she's a comin', you know? And for Jamie in Tyrion 11, he decided he had to be bigger than hiding this from Tyrion for once, what he usually would have done, and confess to this crime that not a single person knew. But then he blames the consequences on that act on himself when, like you and I have discussed, I don't know, Tyrion was kind of a bomb waiting to be set off. Yeah,
1: there was no good time to tell Tyrion except for like maybe right after it happened and being honest up front. That was the time. And that's past. Yeah, and as you said, it was a t- bomb waiting to be set off not only just because of Tyrion, but also it's set up like that in the narrative, right? We're getting hints of it from Jamie's own perspective since, I don't know, even Clash, right? Doesn't he say something more or less to Catelyn about this? And so it's all building up mm-hmm. to this moment, and that moment for Tyrion, right, is a huge, huge turning point for him and his story, but it also in a way is a turning point for Jamie, right? His chapter, yeah. his character becomes disillusioned and jaded in a different way
0: than it's been this whole time. It does in a way remind me of another couple of siblings that we know. Uh, mm. You might remember this back before back when Lady was alive, just to get real sad. (laughs) You might remember Uh, Sansa. (laughs) Why am I this way? Uh, Sansa shifts the blame from Lady and the consequences from the stuff happening on the Trident to associate it with the Queen and Arya, right? She says, the Queen had done it. She was the one to hate her and Arya. Nothing bad would have happened except for Arya. But here, Jaime is taking the blame on himself. Yeah, and I think that Jamie shifting the blame onto himself, it kind of very much reminds me again of
1: Jon Snow. It's a very Jon mm-hmm. thing to do, to be like, it was my fault. I did this. And, uh, you know, I think there is a big part of it, as we said earlier, like, Jamie taking the blame helps him feel a little bit more in control of the situation where he's, like, very lost. He has no control. He, he's losing the hand that very much defined him for a long time. But also he's doing it to punish himself because he's, like, At least this is something. Not just for Tywin's death, right? Um, But also, as he realizes for the first time, he had long suspected it. That's why it keeps coming up in his own chapters in Storm and even, like, that hint earlier on, like, that this is going to be a hurtful revelation for Tyrion. I think this has been eating at him for, like,
0: what? Years. And he's like, it's- 20 years- well, not 20, but- 10 years, 15 years, More than Absolutely. that, more than, yeah, like, about 15 years. And
1: he's, like, been like, this is fine, right? And he even tells Serenia, he's like, it's fine, right? I mean, she was basically the same thing, right? She's only after your golden and like, what? Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. He knew the whole time it wasn't okay. And, and all of those consequences come to head, and thus he refuses to sleep.
0: Yeah, because if he slept he might dream. This reminds me of Eddard fifteen in A Game of Thrones. Flashback, holy crap. Uh, When he slept, he dreamed. Dark, disturbing dreams of blood and broken promises. The chapter that ended Eddard's arc, the chapter that led the dead-end investigation into Twincest, leads here, where Jaime himself is trying to separate himself from Twincest. Yeah, but
1: even with that, like, it's so interesting because Jamie and Cersei's chapters are so tied in a way. Like, it contrasts so well with Cersei's opening chapter in Feast. She's sleeping at first. It opens with her sleeping, right, in a dream, and then she wakes in and she's like, oh, shit, my dad's dead? And she's like, I wish actually I were asleep right now and that this were all a bad dream. Uh, And Jamie like, fears his guilt and... Tyrion in his dreams. Cersei's also fearing Tyrion appearing in her dreams, but for different reasons. Yeah. Very similar, but yet not. But also is. At midnight, a bunch of septons come in. Some are in Crystal Songs. They're not actually, but it's kind of phrased that way and I want to read it that way. We actually truthfully get In my opinion, quite a good glimpse at religious ceremony in the Seven Kingdoms. I know we kind of graft our real-world religion onto it, but it is different, and we're getting uh, some more details on that. The several hundred septans doing devotions come in through the Father's doors. Then we have septas, seven abreast, and they're singing. They're coming from the Mother's doors. Then we have the Silent Sisters. They're coming down single file from the stranger's steps, and their faces are hooded. And then we have a host of brothers in rough-spun robes, some are wearing actually the iron hammer of the smith, and they all actually make a circuit of the sept, and they worship at each of the
0: altars, they make a sacrifice, and sing a hymn. Jamie closes his eyes to listen, and then realizes he's more tired than he thought, and launches into a flashback. The last time he held a vigil, he was 15, no armor, only a white tunic, and it was a much smaller sept. In the morning, his knees were bloody, and Arthur Dane said, That's part of being a knight, kid. Blood is the seal of our devotion. I feel like that'll be significant one day. Yeah, right? I think so. Multiple meanings. Then Dawn, the sword, taps him on the shoulder, and it's so sharp that Jamie gets some small cuts. But, alas, he rises as a knight. The young lion, not the kingslayer. But that was long ago, and that boy was dead.
1: And again, the boy is dead, but it is the man born?
0: Kill him. Kill the boy. Ugh, there's some sad here. The The young lion. It reminds me of Sansa, once again. Uh, there's a lot of uh, that disillusioned dreamer quality about this. And <sighs> I thought my song was beginning that day, but it was almost done. Just rings so true here for Jamie.
1: I mean, there was life afterwards, right? It was for a long time. He wasn't lif- living it. Now he's like, wait,
0: but maybe I should try again. Well, it's been a while since we've done a fashion hour, and I think we need to break right into it, because there is some crazy fashion happening in these chapters. It is like avant-garde death. Um, it turns out funerals are where you want to flex your best outfits, and we start with Cersei. She's wearing an old gown of black velvet lined with airmine. It's notable that in her own chapters, she talks about for how for Tyrion's funeral... She would wear a scarlet and gold outfit dress with her best rubies, which, A, I want to be like, get it, girl. But also, this kind of shows Cersei did her grieving before in Cersei 1 and 2. Uh, The funeral's a total political event for her. It's a performance. Her judgment of Jaime's beard, forcing Tommen to pray and behave better, all kind of shows that. It's her controlling the situation at best how she can. And knowing now isn't the time for her crazy gowns is a good indicator of where her headspace is, right? She's like, now's not the time to wear some sort of booby dress.
1: Yeah, and I mean, she's always shown quite a great aptitude for picking the clothing for the occasion. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I would love to see her rubies return. Don't know if I want it to be about killing Tyrion, but we'll see. We'll see. There's a line, Tommen wore cloth of gold beneath his sable mantle. As we end the chapter especially, Storm's end gets brought back up into the game. Tommen's legitimacy is kind of made imperative, right, as far as holding uh, and not relying on the Tyrells via Cersei. And the power is still with the Baratheon Lannister regime here. The gold and the black are very big points of that.
1: Yeah, they're still there, and that's where his power allegedly derives from. Allegedly. Allegedly.
0: But we know it comes from Jaime, we get this line from the books. At its head, Jamie stood at vigil, his one good hand curled around the hilt of a tall golden greatsword whose point rested on the floor. The hooded cloak he wore was as white as freshly fallen snow, and the scales of his long hauberk were mother of pearl, chased with gold. Lord Tywin would have wanted him in Lannister gold and crimson, she thought. It always angered him to see Jamie all in white. Her brother was growing his beard again as well. He might have at least waited till father's bones were interred beneath the rock. So this is from Cersei's chapter. Jamie is legitimately cutting himself away from the Lannister look here, and it's showing finally. This is the farthest he's been from that vision, uh, other than being on the road with his head shaved, etc., and his hand cut off. And his silence in these chapters is also very loud. So to say, it's very obvious. There's not a lot of Jaime dialogue between Cersei and him. There's only a little bit in Cersei 1 and 2. But he's kind of avoiding her. We see him being silent in court on purpose, uh, not speaking to her. And it kind of works with his outfit here. He's in white. He's dressed in white like a ghost. Jaime is the ghost of King's Landing right now. Hmm. I think that's a really, really great
1: point, especially as he goes
0: about Quite
1: a few different things. And again, Jamie, Dion, he's wearing the white because he's like, this is what I'm supposed to wear. I'm a Kingsguard, right? He's actually trying to do it right this time. Yeah. It's it's funny that Tywin hated that. It shows how much Tywin felt ownership over Jamie. What's Tywin wearing
0: other than death? Tywin is armored in his death. Uh, no, Tywin is armored for battle, actually. The Silent Sisters chose to dress him. For battle, which, gotta be real with you, I hope he has to go through battle, fucking prick. I hope he goes through all of the layers of hell. But he's wearing heavy steel, enameled deeply, dark crimson, gold inlay on the gauntlets, the greaves, and breastplate. His rondels were golden sunbursts, and a golden lioness crouched upon each shoulder. A maned lion crested the great helm beside his head, Long sword and scabbard studded with rubies. I do like the idea of having the female lion on the shoulders. Mm-hmm. Makes me think of Joanna Lannister. The idea that she is watching from his shoulders, always watching, always there. And we get that same idea from Jamie's chapters in the very end of Feast as well.
1: Same. I hope he has a lot of fucking difficulty, he fucking deserves it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: going into the afterlife. Eventually though, when it comes to this religious ceremony, the devout leave, and Jamie wonders if uh maybe I should've let Loris take my place. Uh but he also knows that if he had done it, and especially let Loris of all people take it in his place, Cersei would have been pissed. But again, despite Loris's arrogance, Jamie sees potential in him, and then he thinks once more of the white book that's waiting for him, and he's like, I would rather hack it before putting lies in it and then wonders about, man, but how the hell am I going to write the truth in it after everything that's happened? And first of all, I think that idea of hacking books kind of reminds me of one of Jamie's sons, Joffrey. Yes. But, I mean, obviously, Jamie's like, that seems dumb. I'm not going to fucking do that. And I do think that this shows in general how much this entire incident with time and death has shaken Jamie's resolve. Like, his last chapter in Storm ended with such positive language, right? Whatever he chose, he He's kind of getting, in many ways, a clean sheet on which to write his future. And the first act that he makes is New Jamie, Honest Jamie, right? First, he's writing all of those truths and he sounds pretty fucking lame in them, uh, as we've discussed. But it, it's great, it's honest, it's very different from what's in the book. And then his first act next is trying to protect the innocent, so he believes. He's not wrong, Tyrion, those who cannot defend themselves. As part of those odes, Again, Tyrion discussing, like, oh, my brother wasn't there during the Blackwater. Also, I mean, like, it's pretty fucking hopeless. How's he gonna escape this prison? I think there's a part of it of Jamie being like, maybe if I choose the other sibling for once, maybe that's the path to honor. Yeah. And then it doesn't work out after he wrote all those truths about himself. Kind of throws up in his face. It really does, though. He's like, Fuck. But even in the face of like this huge setback, I think that's significant because now there's a woman dressed like a tavern wench again, right? Like in soaking wet in front of him and once more Cersei she's reminding him of the time that she came to him dressed in similar similar cosplay to get past the guards back at Castle Rock or whatever and in the context of how shaken Jamie is by everything Cersei coming to him after he's fucked up after all of this I think feels very much like a test right like last time he was resolved to be like I'm gonna hold up the Kingsguard I'm doing it I'm keeping my vows I'm not gonna fuck her in the White Tower and I don't think it's like a great way to think of Cersei's character right but in many ways she is tied to Jaime's narrative and Mm-hmm. symbolizes whether or not he's choosing dishonor and I think this is like a test of will for him right like is he gonna hold on to this resolve of like I'm gonna choose better now after he fucked up super royally semi royally Tywin's only the hand but whatever
0: <laughs> I mean I think you're onto something with that ladder but and it may be like coming from a place of privilege for Jamie Lannister because he's never had to worry about that kind of thing because Right now the only thing he's actually thinking is that Cersei wants something of him, which is also really apt, and I'm I'm really glad to hear that he's finally thinking that, because unfortunately for Cersei, Jamie's finally learned some of her tricks and he's starting to kinda understand, oh, she's just fucking us around. Like Literally. Literally, I mean, this is what she wore when she was hanging out with Ned Stark. He doesn't know that, though, but... He doesn't, but we do, and she was ready to fuck then, too. She was out there, Stannis was gonna show up, and she was like, where's my green cloak? Mm. You know, like, Jamie's starting to realize maybe he's not special to her after all. So, because of all that, Jamie asks her what,
1: and... Hoping she wants comfort, but turns out no! Cersei's like, Kevin has refused being the Hand! And he knows about the twin cyst! Escalation! And he, I mean, that's pretty bad! Right? And she's wondering, like, who else do you think knows? Do you think that Tyrion told the High Septon? And she's like, you know what? You should be Hand again! Not Mace! And she suspects Mace is being part of Tywin's death and Jamie hilariously enough, denies that. He's like, no,
0: Mace isn't part of towing's death (laughs) (laughs) like he's not smart or fast enough and cersei's like listen if you were my hand we'd be king and queen and he's like "Mm, but you wouldn't be my queen and he denies tommen as his son he says look they're both robert's kids they're not mine you didn't let me have them
1: and then there's this line that I found really interesting from Cersei of you swore that you would always love me, it is not loving to make me beg. It's very manipulative.
0: Very manipulative. Very much so. And he smells fear on Cersei. Despite Tywin's overwhelming stench, Jaime like smells her fear. He's tempted to hold her and protect her, but then remembers, not here, he thought, not in front of the gods and father. no. He said, I cannot, will not. I need you, I need my
1: other half. He could hear the rain pattering against the windows high above. You are me, I am you. I need you with me, in me. Please,
0: Jamie, please. Uh, interesting shift about uh, last time he was with Cersei and last time Cersei was with him, and what happened in this uh, sept. Absolutely. And I th- it it brings me back to like some of what we were saying
1: in last chapter of how Jaime has that power to say no, and hold the god sacred and his father holy and all this, but Cersei wasn't able to do that for herself.
0: Mm-hmm. There's
1: a couple of other things too, like uh, there's something kind of Freudian here going on too, like with Tywin, of course, is that overbearing super ego. He's very much that role for Tyrion, and how Jaime fears Tywin knowing or seeing. But there's something in uh, Cersei's language that I think comes back to something that we discussed way, 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 way back then in Ned's chapters. Oh. But also, only a little bit back then, in Jamie's chapters, <laughs> um, talking again about Plato and the whole, right, and, and how people used to have, like, four arms and four legs. And maybe you've heard a version of this now in the half of it, the Netflix movie, which was fantastic, I highly recommend maybe popularize that passage by Plato now, but it's a great interpretation and artistic, like cinematic uh exploration of that. Again, highly recommend. Please go watch. I'm done. Um that was a very organic plug, but <laughs> it kinda of was but like uh, that idea of Cersei seeing Jaime as her other half, right? And saying that they belong together, that they are tied to one another, especially when with, with Cersei interpreting it as, well, we came into this world together, we got to go out together. And her just sort of trying to cling to him.
0: There's a lot of clinging happening here, and it's almost uh, very obvious that he's pulling away, right? Like his outfit earlier, like we said, is very much pulling away from that Lannister identity, but she can feel it too. I mean, neither of them know, and, like, to be
1: fair, how do you break up?
0: With your sister?
1: That you've been sleeping with, or your brother that you've been sleeping with, right?
0: Your sister? How do you? How do you? God, Jamie is nervous that his father is rising, since his father is just, like, rigor mortis setting in with his muscles. Uh, He gives the excuse that Jamie thinks he should be fighting not stuck in the council chambers and Cersei's like all right fine you can go be on battlefields and she leaves after being disappointed with him closing with the line I was a fool to come I was a fool ever to love you loudly and wetly she leaves she is in fact it's waning but also right hmm wouldn't be the first time uh It makes you want to jam out to Half by the Manimals. Check out their album, Seven, if you have not very good Game of Thrones concept album. And it actually reminds me of a line from Johnny Boy. Hmm. Chapter six, A Storm of Swords. You were wrong to love her, a voice Mm. whispered. You were wrong to leave her, a different voice whispered. That's an interesting parallel. Especially when thinking of possibly the loves and relationships to come for Jon Snow in the story. Absolutely. Well, also, you know, in
1: the context of Jamie, like, I mean, it was wrong for him to love his twin sister like that.
0: Yep. For sure. Will
1: it be wrong for him to have left her? Depending on how that goes down. Interesting. But right now, surprise, it's almost done. We time traveled. It's still pretty in here, though, and Tywin is also still rotting. It's a, He's extremely gross now. People are starting to notice, like, the Septons, and some of the people get nauseous around him, and they're novices, they're swinging sensors around of incense. Like, maybe this will help. It doesn't. It still smells real bad. I don't think I need to go into this that much, partly because I think it's fairly evident, but also this is one of those things that has been, like, explored heavily already by a lot of yeah. other people in the fandom, and I don't want to retread that ground. But just, you know, one line, Tywin's corpse rotting so horribly and the rotting of his legacy, that's it. A lot of other people have done great analysis on this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's up there with the pink letter, right? Like, there's no reason. Yeah. No reason. So eventually, the Tyrells enter among the first of the people entering because they're high class. Marjorie brings a bouquet of golden roses to leave at Tywin's uh body, very cleverly, and she brings her own gold rose back with her so she can smell it throughout the ceremony and not smell the awfulness.
1: Yeah, and her ladies actually follow her example. Jamie's like, that, that was pretty smart. Tommen Tom would be alright to have her. And then Cersei <laughs> waits to make a fashionably late entrance with Tommen. Osmond, interestingly, is also there, and Jamie once again remembers Tyrion's words. And then Jamie thinks about, oh, Osmond is so hairy and then tries to imagine C.R.C. and Osmond boning. There's, like, a line. I didn't put it in here. I'm going to try to remember it. He was something, like, spun gold and, like, black Wire. wires.
0: And I'm like, okay. Oh, yeah, I remember. I'll never forget. I'm like, tell me about his sex. <laughs> tell me about everyone's pubic hair, Jamie. And all he's imagining is, like, Osmond pumping into her. She is. He's like, it's untrue, he thinks. But, you know... Something about this chapter that I didn't really realize till now is that this chapter is like rejecting truths on a stage, right? Mm -hmm. Cersei knows that this is a social event, so her on that stage might not be saying 100% truthful things, but it's her soapbox for the moment. And Jaime has done this his entire life uh, as the Kingslayer pretty much the role Ned had to play. Jamie is denying all of the truth on a stage where anyone could see it. And he gets struck down in a way.
1: Yeah. But it's a very Lannister thing in this moment, right? I think there's a part of him that in rejecting truths is kind of mirroring Cersei, right? He's struggling to to integrate this narrative, this new information of like, Cersei has been sleeping with other people, partially because we never defined the relationship or whatever. Um, and he's just rejecting it, right? He's like, that can't be true. And at the same time, as, as you said earlier, Cersei's been rejecting that idea that Tywin Lannister would sleep with sex workers or literally anyone, apparently, in her past chapter. She's like very convinced that her father has never ever had sex except for with Joanna Lannister ever again. And. Yikes. And then, of course, we had Tywin before, right? Being like, I'm, I'm convinced Tywin had to have known. Like, how do you just not know that your twin children are having sex? Like, especially if his wife knew, right? Like, you have to be very blind and not paying attention. And Kevin obviously knows. So, like, they're a family of just burying things down and being like, that can't be real.
0: Yeah. It's pretty much a bummer. Especially when you think of the kids. Cersei forces time to pray. Next, he starts crying because he's eight and she's being very harsh. And finally, Jamie has Osmond take his place and chases out after Tommen and he apologizes. He gets his son out of the people's eyes, and Tommen's like, It wasn't, it was the smell. How could you bear it? Jamie thinks of his hand rotting and speaks to Tommen.
1: A man can bear most anything if he must, Jamie told his son. I have smelled a man roasting as King Ares cooked him in his own armor. The world is full of horrors, Tommen. You can fight them or laugh at them
0: or look without seeing. Go away inside. Tommen considered that. I used to go away inside sometimes, he confessed. When Joffrey... Joffrey... Cersei stood over them,
1: the wind whipping her skirts around her legs. Your brother's name was Joffrey. He would never have shamed me so. Projection. Pretty much. I also secretly included this because I really like jo- the word Joffy.
0: It's cute. It's so cute. And Tommen, Tommen like, is a cutie. <laughs> Joffy. Oh, oh. Except it's not cute because it's depicting abuse.
1: I know, but the word itself and how Tommen can't yeah. say it. Adorable, precious, and him being like he's like he, I'm eight. It reminds me again of like Marcella being like, "Well, Joffrey, we're fucking kids, <laughs> chill, <laughs> homie." Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's um a couple of ways, as we all know, that Cersei is not like Tywin. Come again, even though she thinks she is. A lot of it, I think, is that parenting. You know, first of all, she t- follows a lot of the Tywin model, as we said again, of like looking over people's faults and pretending that's not real she did a lot of that i think with joffrey and his horrible acts and that kind of led to his ruin in the same way that uh tywin overlooking the children's sexual activity kind of led to jamie being like yeah i'm gonna join the kingsguard why not uh but you know she does the same thing as tywin right she puts her horrible firstborn son who was beautiful on a pedestal jamie's not like joffrey though very much um in a lot of ways and also, seriously, just kind of verbally pummeling Tommen for being unable to, for being unable to, like, stand the rotting and being eight years old, right, uh, and not living up to this idealized, firstborn, beautiful son, the way that Tywin does oh, to
0: yeah. That's a great point. And I think we get a little call out that Joffrey definitely did abuse Tommen more than we saw mm-hmm. here. I've related a lot of this with Sandor before in our podcast, but... Uh, You have that line in Sansa 1, A Clash of Kings, where Joffrey yells, he got knocked off his horse and fell in the dirt. That's not riding well. And the hound says, look, the boy has courage. He's going to try again. Yes. Uh, Yes. It brings me back to that line, though, with the brave companions and Brienne and Jamie, where Jamie uh, says, when we make for camp for the night, you'll be raped. And more than once, you'd be wise not to resist. And Brienne says back, is that what you would do if you were a woman? Uh, This advice here is, you know, I'm not sure if it's the best advice. Uh, Jamie spent years and years, years and years and years repressing all of this, and just now he's healthily getting it out like 40 years later, 30 years later? I don't know.
1: Yeah, and I I think that shows some of that sliding back. And also, he just doesn't know what to tell Tommen, but like you said... It's not the best advice, especially as Jamie's starting to realize, what if I didn't just go away inside and started doing things and making the changes that I wanted to see in the world? Be the change, Jamie. Seriously, though, right now, she's still, like, continuing to scold her son, and then she's pointing, like, all right, you're crying, but look at all these other fucking Tyrells that didn't cry. And then she turns on Jamie, who's like, seriously, enough. She's like, no, fuck you. Uh, she insists that he hasn't kept his vigil, seven days and seven nights, and then insults the number of his fingers and being able to count on it. And then Mace Tyrell comes. He's, like, approaching to ask after Tommen, which I think is probably, like, you no, know, it's a normal person thing to do. Mm-hmm. Jimmy then suggests, oh, Mace, what if you had supper with Cersei after the services? <laughs> and everyone's, like, interesting idea and they're very surprised and shocked not in like a happy way and everyone responds incredibly courteously eventually Mace Tyrell leaves with Adam Marbrand and then Cersei gets mad at Jaime again like what the fuck
0: was that it's such a drain because Cersei and her crew could so use a sympathetic image right now right like capitalize go all in on this holy our father who died thing the grandfather of the king politicize that image that would be so smart. And the Tyrells, at this point, she's so much better off charming and using them rather than abusing and dumping them because it turns out you don't have Tywin to tie everything together. Like, mm-hmm. you're kind of on a raft in the middle of the ocean whether you realize it right now or not. Yeah, and she she
1: has no idea how to actually, she has no idea how to trust outside of the Lannisters, right? And Tywin never taught her to do that in the way that the Tyrells have taught and fostered those alliances.
0: He's taught her to distrust it. Yeah, he's kind of taught her to distrust everyone. The Reigns, the Castamires, Ares? Pretty
1: much, and I, th- I and I get it, because I think that's how Tywin saw the world. Right? It's like Cersei inherited a lot of the very difficult parts of Tywin. I don't know that there were good parts of Tywin. Mm hmm. Me either. I just don't uh, Tyrion, know. It, it maybe inherited the ruthlessness. Yeah. Uh, Jamie
0: uh, did get some of the pragmatic planning.
1: Some of I it. Would say. He got a some lot of, of the it. hopes and dreams, but yeah, the pragmatic planning. Like, he's trying to explain to Cersei, like, you know, we kind of need the Tyrells, but here's an idea. What if you send Mace to Storm's End on behalf of Ty- Tommen, and he can, like, try and take Storm's End or die trying? And in exchange, right? We know that Mace isn't going to leave unless they secure a marriage between Tommen and Marjorie, and they're like, you know what, it's fine. Let's just fucking do it. They can't consummate it anyway. It can be set aside eventually, and Cersei's like, interesting, interesting. You know,
0: Mace could die. Yes, and we get this passage. There is that risk, conceded Jamie. especially if his patience runs thin this time, and he elects to storm the gate.
1: Cersei gave him a lingering look. You know, she said, for a moment, you sounded quite like father.
0: Ah... Uh. Not only is that a a perfect way to get rid of the people you really don't want to talk to, but B, Cersei finally remembered that Storm's End is kind of important and could be like a very big political thing for them because you know, the heir to Storm's End is the Baratheon heir, and yep, that's true. the
1: The Baratheon seat is pretty important to Tom and uh, Baratheon power, baby. Power is power. I mean, it was important, right, for Rob. How could it not be for the Baratheons? Yeah. And the strategy that Jamie comes up here, like, it does kind of seem like something that we've seen George kind of lean on before. Send them to go do something important. And interestingly, maybe they'll conveniently die. It's very similar to how Varys and Littlefinger were thinking back in A Game of Thrones about <laughs> who they felt that Ned Stark should have sent to fetch back Gregor Clegane and bring him to justice. Turns out Jamie's capable of thinking of that kind of political strategy, too. He just uh, can't make the better strategy of, like, what if Cersei and the Tyrells got along? He just can't make that work. It's a hard ask, though,
0: to be yeah. fair. I, I mean, hell, I would argue that was Rugen you were speaking of. Rugen? Oh, I'm sorry. Said all that? Rugen, yes. <laughs> Rugen. No, that all makes sense. And the saddest part is that in this strategy, to our knowledge, we don't know if it's true or not. We don't really know what has happened with Loris, but innocent blood is potentially spilled via Loris, right? Maybe not fully innocent, but Loris is a semi honorable Jamie mini prototype, perfect young knight, right? And he, hot-headed, goes straight into the first scene he can go into and we're told he might not make it. We don't know yet. We won't know for a time. Yeah,
1: considering that back then, Varys and Littlef- Littlefinger were like, "Yo, yeah, what if you sent Loris after Gregor?
0: <laughs> what if? What if? I mean, that would be awful. He would have died.
1: Yeah, he would have died and they're like, yeah, that'd be great. That's what like, Littlefinger and Varys were like, that'd be great. <laughs> for you um,
0: <laughs> you know this chapter has so much starting just framework for a feast for crows and jamie's plot moving forward and brienne and cersei's plot moving forward i know it's not a, really a heavy chapter so far as uh, you know just so far as answers but it's definitely heavy and starting some questions for us to get through through the next few weeks
1: yeah, and I love that it ends with a little bit of that ambiguity of like, hey, how much of on this path of honor, right, is Jamie on? Like, how much is he... He's wavering. It's, it's difficult. Changing habits from, I don't know, like 15 years of your life is hard. It's fluctuating. It's a battle every day is different. Yeah, and your mindset, like trying to mm-hmm. be positive... It's hard especially when you're like oh maybe my actions led to my dad dying when i was trying to do something good so there's a lot that's setting this up and of (laughs) course jamie once more his relationship with his family we haven't seen him interact with them that
0: that that much yeah well we Uh, have and we haven't whatever not enough but we're about to get some more well that about wraps us up for a song of ice and fire episode 89 Jamie 1 in A Feast for Crows. We're so glad you all could have joined us today. And next week, we're going to have Jamie 2 in A Feast for Crows, which has a whole lot to talk about. This all gets deeper. hmm hmm And, of course, stay
1: tuned for when that happens, right? You can find us on social media at Girls Gone Cannon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter. Send us a tweet with your thoughts. Or maybe you have a question or something else that you'd like to bring up. You can find us on email at GirlsGoneCanon at
0: gmail.com. Yes, please do send us an email, and if you are not subscribed to us already on your local podcast platform, make sure you subscribe to get all of the newest updates and episodes. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and of course on Spotify and Podbean, where we're hosted many other RSS feeds everywhere else, too.
1: And of course, we do have a Patreon. As we said, this month, our special episode for all patrons, $5 and up. Will be about the free city of Mir solely because it has three letters, begins with the letter M and also has the letter
0: Y, just like the month of May. Very important. It's Absolutely. Patreon.com slash girls canon for that. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another
1: one of your hosts, Eliana. We only have two hosts, Eliana. We have Allie the intern. No, she's an executive producer. Oh, sorry. Jake wow, is the when intern. did she get? When did she get promoted so fast? Oh, you're right. Jake has always been the intern. Maybe she's a kettle black. Maybe she is. Goodbye. Bye.